Uh, gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this morning of worship and a community of faith, Father. We're grateful for our ministers and the word preached and the sacrament received. Uh, we ask that you would now take this time that you've set aside for uh, discussion and thought and teaching and uh, sanctified, Lord, by the presence of your own Holy Spirit here. We know that if we learn something from this, it will be because you are here with us, and we thank you for that in advance. We do pray for these young uh, girls and boys who are off on a retreat this weekend. Lord, that you would guard and protect their hearts and that they would learn something. Their lives might even be transformed this weekend for the rest of their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, we're going to watch a... Uh, no, I'm going I'm to tell you what this class is about for us. Um, uh, the, um, this is not a how-to uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Well, let me ask this. How many, how many people in here, their child is being confirmed this year is their first child to be confirmed? First child to be confirmed. Okay, second. Okay, so we got first-timers and second-timers. You know, sometimes, the reason we do this is because uh, sometimes uh, in life, uh, you don't recognize it's a milestone until after you've already gone through it. Um, and, um, uh, the, um, and it's particularly true with raising children. We heard somebody say this years ago, and it just really struck, struck us, uh, about parenting. said that parenting is uh, long days and short years. And now that we're on the other side of parenting, we have th- uh, four grown children, um, boy, is that true. That is so true. Uh, and so from a, this is a milestone, and the church chooses this time in the life of a child to uh, ask them to commit on behalf of themselves what their parents committed for them at baptism. So as, as you all were talking about before we got started here, they've done a great job of the curriculum for the confirmands. And we always thought that it would be great to have just a you know, two or three session series uh, for the parents of the confirmands say, you know, let's make sure that we are really stopping for a moment to take the time and say, where are we headed? What does this mean for this particular child in our family? Um, and can we stop and maybe get some pro- little, you know, recognize the milestone before we hit it, and then uh, maybe get some provision for the journey ahead? Uh, and so this year, one of the things we did was we asked uh, about 40 people uh, to, to, to weigh in on, uh, on this as well. And we're going to talk about that probably more in the last class than we will this class. But uh, one thing that we know will happen, and uh, it'll, it'll be that uh, uh, your children, uh, this particular child who's in confirmation class in the next six years, uh, will have some problems. Some things will come up. Some bumps in the road will come up. We know that's going to happen. The second thing we know that will happen is that there's very likely with a few of those bumps, they'll think they're the only person in the world that has this problem. Okay, And it's very likely that at some point in time, between now and the time they're 18 and they graduate from high school, as a result of one of these problems, they'll think, what is wrong with me? And the scripture is very clear about that. Uh, and so today's lesson is really a, uh, a, a foundational lesson about uh, that, what's wrong with me and what God's done to make it right. So we thought we'd take a, a, a little uh, clip to get our heads in the right spot. This was from, uh, uh, I still call him Neil Lair. I don't know what the right name is. PBS News Hour. PBS News Hour. Um, uh, some number of uh, months ago. Uh, about a month ago, and it was uh, Shields and Brooks, Brooks and Shields, the, the liberal and the conservative back and forth that goes on that program every Friday, and they're talking about Brian Williams, the NBC anchor. Okay, that's what this little clip is about. Yeah. 
not signed with CBS, but David probably knew the critic the Times, and of course the news from, from John Stewart. David, um, on the Brian Williams question, I guess, you know, what I'm curious to know is, does that reflect on everyone in the media? How, how does, how does the, the media come out of this episode? And You can have all the accolades in the world be where Brian Williams was at the tippy top. Public's fame is still empty and it still leaves you hungry. And you still want to brag a little more on the hope that you'll get what you want, which is some sort of adulation that'll satisfy you. But that never happens. That never comes. And so it just leaves you hungrier and hungrier. And I think that's what we saw with Brian Williams, somebody who just wanted to be seen a little cooler and so made up some stuff. I personally think the reaction against him is way out of proportion to what he did. And I think we all have to cultivate a capacity for forgiveness, for rigorous forgiveness, to do what he did. And I, I personally hope he continues his job. Just well, that was, that was uh, David Brooks, New York Times columnist, uh, trying to explain uh, what he did. Yeah. What did y'all think about his explanation? Sounds, uh, sounds like the beginning of a couple of sermons I've heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I listening to that, Victor, you're gonna say something. Yeah, exactly. It seems like a, kind of today's society is always more and more and more, and obviously Williams wanted to try to put himself as, a, like he said, a little more cooler. Yeah. Even if he has to lie to do it. Yeah. Some like junior high, didn't they? They did. Very yeah. Much. Yeah. Very much. Yeah, I heard his Don brought this home and said, "You gotta listen to this." And um, because we really like David Brooks, and I don't think he's a Christian. Um, I believe he's actually culturally Jewish. Um, but his diagnosis of what was going on with Brian Williams to me seems spot on. Yeah. Seems and, yeah. Well, and I think I think his diagnosis. He's talking about a problem that really has its roots in Scripture. Yeah. And you're right. Deborah was touching on it in her sermon today. And um, I thought what we'd look at, just kind of using that as a jumping off point, is look at what Scripture tells us is the problem. And that always takes us back to Genesis 3, and I'm, but I'm going to kind of start in Genesis 2. And you've got, um, since we are not a Bible-bringing congregation, I've, I've, I printed the Scripture out for you. And let's just, let's just look at this. Um, and this is starting in Genesis 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And then chapter 2 closes with this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I'm just going to linger there for a moment. Think about that. Think about being naked and not ashamed. Imagine having nothing to hide, Nothing to cover up, nothing to make up, um, no need to make ourselves look better inside or out. 
And if you really think about that, that is true freedom. That is true ease. That is true peace. And, you know, that that is how it's supposed to be. But in chapter 3, things change dramatically. Um, now, the serpent was more subtle, and some translations say crafty, than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And I want to stop right there and just really appreciate that contrast. You know, they were naked and not ashamed, and now they're naked and they're ashamed. And I came across a really good definition of shame, and it says shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. That sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. And there really is, there's a sense of unease with their nakedness. Um, they have this new awareness of self that's not good. Um, and these, you, you almost feel this inadequacy and this insecurity that has, that has come in when their eyes were open. Their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, and they had this instinctive desire to cover up. Um, and they now have a need to dress themselves up, to shield from view certain things, to disguise their flaws, a need to really control what other people see, um, a need to kind of create an illusion. And golly, that is in our DNA. It has come down from Adam and Eve all the way down to us, to the next generation, and it will continue on. Um, we are all naked and ashamed. And we all seek to kind of inflate the view that other people have of us, uh, to project some kind of glittering image, to try to put on all sorts of things that will mask our real insecurity and our inadequacy. And to, to use David Brooks's words, um, we need to make ourselves seem a little cooler. We are hungry, and we want to brag a little more on the hope that we will get what we want, some kind of adulation that will satisfy our hungry hearts. And, you know, he nails it. And if you didn't know he was talking about Brian Williams, you really would think he was talking about teenagers. You know, 13 and 14-year-olds, um, our children, as children are leaving childhood and they're coming into the teenage years, 
everything around them's changing. You know, their school usually changes, their friend groups can change, their body starts to change, the way they think, the way they think about themselves begins to change, and it can be a period of real insecurity um, where they have a real hunger for affirmation, for that feeling that they belong, that they're okay. Um, and they really can. They can go from fig leaf to fig leaf. If you think about it, you know, I need the right clothes. I need the right jeans. I need the right boots. Um, I need the right body. I need the right physique. I need to make the right teams. I need to be in the right groups. Um, I need the right resume with the right service projects, with the right grades and the right courses so I can get in the right college. I mean, they, they are so consumed with being in the right group of people, going to the right parties, having the right number of likes on their whatever, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, they, whatever they're doing, just so they can feel significant. And, you know, as parents, I think we really need to appreciate the unease and the insecurity our children can feel. And I tried to find this, and I couldn't, but it was an old Zitz cartoon, same person who does Baby Blues. I don't know if you all read the cartoons, but I remember reading this when I had teenagers, and Jeremy's this kind of teenage boy, and he walks in the door of his house, and he's got a backpack on his back, and he's bent over. And in the backpack, the, the cartoonist has written out all the things that has happened to him that day and all the pressures he's felt, all the inadequacies he's felt, all the slights and the digs he's felt, and he is just burdened over it. And the mom greets him, and it was kind of like, what grade did you make on your test? And he just, you know, just smashes to the floor and I think, you know, as parents, we really need to realize that there's a lot going on in their worlds that really speaks to the insecurity that children can feel. And that just, that really, that was a good message to me as a mom to think, okay, before I start adding the pressure, I need to, to, to really appreciate that. And, but also as Christians, we know that nothing on earth that we chase after is really going to quiet the sense of unease in our souls. That, um, that nothing will satisfy the hunger in our hearts. Um, and that really is what Genesis 3 teaches us. You know, even if we make it to the tippy top, like Brian Williams, however you define it, um, it's not enough. And, you know, I, I think we can all think back to things that we really set our heart on. I know for me, I can remember it was one of those aha moments in college setting my heart on a particular sorority that I thought if those people wanted me, if they accepted me, then that's all I needed. And, you know, just anxiety. I, I got that sorority, and a week later, it wasn't enough. And I knew it, and it was one of those things I thought, no matter what it is, it's never going to be enough. It's like cotton candy. I mean, it's sweet for a moment, then it's gone, and you're still hungry for more. And um, St. Augustine says this. He says, O oh Lord, 
Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in in thee. And that is so true. God is the only one who can fill the hunger for significance, um, for acceptance, for peace in our hearts. God is the only one. And so let's look at the next two, the next two verses because I think it really speaks to that. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So here's God in the garden calling to the man, Where are you? Now God knows everything. So he's not looking for information. So why do you think God asked this question? Yeah, he wanted he wanted Adam to answer him. Where are you? You know, I mean, it's a you know, it's a great question. Where are you? And Adam would have to go. You know, I'm here. I'm naked and I'm hiding and I I've got all these fig leaves. And if you give me just a little bit more time, I'll have enough and I'll come out. I mean, where are you? Is really a call to repentance, a call to admit all the things you're using to hide behind. You know, to endeavor sermon today, all the idols that you're looking towards. So where are you is, is, is really a call to, to, to examine ourselves. To say, you know, golly, I am hiding behind all these different things that don't cover my profound sense of unease. Um, where are you is really a call to look around and look and acknowledge these are the fig leaves. These are the things I'm using to soothe my restless, hungry heart. And it's a call to, to lay him down and to turn to God. But I think there's another, another way to also look at this question. Where are you is a call of repentance, but it's also a call of grace. Because it's God coming after man. You know, it's not Adam running out going, God, I blew it, I'm sorry. I mean, Adam's over there hiding. It's God who comes after Adam. And that is so remarkable if you stop and think about it. And it really is the first call of grace. God goes after what is lost. And Jesus gives us all those parables about God's heart. That God is the father who lifts his skirts and runs off the porch to embrace the prodigal son. That God is the shepherd who goes, who leaves the 99 and goes searching for the one. That God is like the woman who loses the coin and turns the house upside down and does not rest until she gets it. God goes after what is lost. And God and this is just to use words from Philippians 2, is that God was willing to empty himself, take the form of a servant, and be born in our likeness in the person of Jesus Christ. To come to live for us, to die for us, and to bring us back to himself. And that is 
that is what knowing his love and his heart for us that's where we find rest for our restless hearts that's where we find ease and peace um, for the sense of unease that we have within us and I have to say when I was in sixth grade I wish somebody had come along and really explained that to me explained you know let me tell you what went wrong in the fall and why you have this deep hunger in your soul and that everybody else no matter how much they look like they have it all together has that same hunger you are not alone in that and also know that people can go about trying to fill that hunger fill that unease in all sorts of destructive ways that would have I, 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 I would love to have heard that message and then to have heard the message that Jesus Christ came because he loved you and that he wanted to give his life for me that would have that would have been a message that I really really needed to hear when I was in sixth grade about to walk into this into the world that's so shaky underfoot particularly 13 14 year olds um, and I would say that as parents y'all have a great this is a tailor-made opportunity for y'all to really walk alongside your children they will have this assignment in week nine to read Genesis 3 and read it's a their passage is a little bit longer than what we looked at today and we really only looked at it in one way but they'll have that assignment that's a great opportunity to sit down and really talk to them and y'all are the front lines and you know the church is here to support us as parents but we really as parents are the front line and so I would really encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity. I know some of y'all are probably, the good news of Jesus Christ is already a robust conversation in your family. And if that's the case, this is an opportunity just to take it deeper. But for those of you who, you know, the message of redemption is not something we've really ever talked about. This is your opportunity. And I would say that Don and I, we really grew in faith alongside of our children. Um, it wasn't until they started asking questions that we got our Bibles out and thought, you know, we need to know um, what it is we believe in order to help our children. And, um, boy, sometimes we were maybe on the same page or just a half a page ahead of them. But there was a richness in walking alongside your children. And so really what we want to spend the rest of the morning talking about is how do we as parents intentionally come alongside our children and I think we're just going to kind of open it up for discussion and D.Y. I'm going to give you this. Yeah. Do you really want to record the responses? Gil really wanted okay. because there were so many table leaders that were going to the retreat that wanted to be able to hear so I'm okay. going well, to just, uh, just know that it's going to be on the website. Oh, that's true. Then we may not want to do that. I think I I can. Sorry, Gil. (laughs) 